I was born in South Boston, Virginia, a really small town. Um, my dad is now a retired emergency room doctor, so he was doing some of his training up there. Uh, and then we moved down to Chapel Hill, North Carolina. I went to UNC Chapel Hill for undergrad. Um, and as a kid, we lived in the country, kind of rurally on like four acres of land in the woods. And I remember when Hurricane Fran happened in the 90s um, and knocked over a bunch of trees on our property. And I just had a blast running around and running through all the downed trees. And we had a little creek. I love playing outside and pretending to be a Boy Scout, that kind of thing. <laughs> I took a gap year between high school and college where I went and did woofing which is, you know, working on farms in exchange for room and board, basically. I did that around Western Europe. I graduated high school in 2009. So it was during the financial crisis, the mortgage crisis. And I had never left the country before. So I was 18, you know, on the other side of the ocean, watching this huge crisis, economic crisis unfold. And I had no idea how much things that happened in the U.S. impacted the rest of the world. So that really fascinated me. I thought it was really weird how the newspapers in England would have just the whole front page would be about the U.S. I just never realized the reach that the U.S. has on, on the rest of the world. So watching all that happen, I wanted to come back and study economics in college because I wanted to just kind of figure out what had happened. And I wanted to do important work. And I kind of asked myself, like, well, what's more important in, in this world than, you know, money and what makes the world go round? I should figure out how it works and see what happens. So I studied economics. And then after college, I got a job with IBM. And I moved to Philadelphia to work for them in software, kind of software implementation. I ended up in life sciences, pharmaceuticals, helping these like mega big pharma corporations install huge pieces of software that did everything for them from tracking raw materials in the warehouse to packing the finished product to shipping it to the billing and all that kind of thing. I got to travel a lot for that job, uh, which was cool. I worked in Slovakia for close to a year and I got to go all over Latin America I speak Spanish, so that was really fun to do. And towards the end, I worked for this company that made medical devices. They made infusion devices that control how much um, medicine goes through an IV and catheters. They made all kinds of like um, colonoscopy bags and you know regular catheters, that type of stuff. And at some point, I realized like how many steps away from the actual product and service of like a like a doctor or a nurse you know, helping someone with their catheter, I was, I was like, well, I manage this team of people who creates training materials to train the corporate employees on how to use this piece of software so that the people who work in the factories can, you know, be organized and create this product and ship it so that then it arrives at these doctor's offices all around the world so that then the doctors can, you know, give it to the patient at the end of the day and, and actually, like, they have the patient contact. Like, that's where the end use is in the real world. And I'm, like, eight or nine steps alienated from that. 
something about that just made me so miserable. Like I sent emails all day. I wasn't doing anything. It sounds crazy to think back on it, but I really felt this way and I still, now that I have like a blue collar job, like I still believe that this feeling was legitimate, but I would fly to the office Generally, I would fly on a Monday morning and fly back on a Thursday evening back to Philly. I would fly to a client site. And I remember I would sit on the airplane on Monday mornings and look down at the people loading the bags onto the plane and think to myself like, oh my God, they're doing a real thing. Their job is to move the bags onto the plane. And it's clear to them when their job is completed, there's no ambiguity, and they know exactly why they need to do this job. And what am I gonna do? I'm gonna go fly and send these weird emails all day that don't get anything done. So <laughs> I was pretty miserable, needless to say. Uh, once I got too in my head about what I was actually doing at IBM, and I made a list about everything I hated about that job. Like I hated sitting down all day and sending emails and being inside and not having an impact on the world feeling like alienated from the task at hand. Of course, I thought the solution was to go to grad school. That's never a solution. So I did one semester at Wharton MBA, and it was a dual degree program, also a master's of international studies. So I actually got to do the fun part of that degree, which was live in Latin America for a summer and work on my Spanish. And then when I came back to Philly and I looked at the 70 gram tuition bill that was due. Uh, I pulled the plug on that and I withdrew from that program on Friday, on a Friday in August and drove back to North Carolina on a Saturday. And I was enrolled in an EMT class within a, within a week or two um, because I looked back at my list of everything that I hated about that job and thought about what would be the opposite of what I had been doing. And the things that came to mind or basically firefighting, or something in the medical field, like like a doctor like my dad, or be a PA. So that's how I got pointed in that direction. In general, it's extremely difficult to get a job as a firefighter. People often apply to, you know, 10 departments at a time. It often takes people two, three, four, or five years of applying to get in anywhere. I work at a mid-sized city in the southeast. We typically have close to 400 applicants for around 15 to 20 spots. So it's it's a very competitive job to get. Uh, when I first started thinking about becoming a firefighter, when I was in Philly, I looked into their requirements. And basically, you take a written test, and then you do a physical agility test, and you get points for each of those um, events. And then in Philadelphia, and especially in New York City, like FDNY, they give extra points on top of your scores for being like a military veteran or having a parent that was a firefighter. So when I looked into Philly's requirements, I thought to myself, you know, even if I have perfect scores, I'll never make it pass because I don't have, I'm not a veteran. I have no family in the fire service. So I came down to North Carolina, and one way to make yourself stand out is to already have your EMT certificate. So I went ahead and enrolled in a class at UNC 
And one of my instructors happened to be a, a firefighter at the department that I wanted to work at. So I was able to speak with him some, and I did well in the class and got a recommendation from the teacher of that class who has a relationship with the fire department too. Towards the end of that semester, I applied and showed up, did the physical agility test, which is kind of like a extreme fire service obstacle course while you wear a 35-pound air pack on your back, and it's timed. And then you take a written test um, that's just kind of, it's more like reading comprehension, and there's some ethics questions in there. You score well enough on that, and then you're invited to a panel interview. I had never been to an interview that formal in my life. It was three senior members of the fire department sitting at the other end of a long table. They're wearing their, you know, all of their regalia. You sit at the other end of the table. And they're just stone-faced, completely serious. One of them will read the question. And you just kind of take however long you want to answer it while they make notes. They don't respond at all. They don't react. After you do your interview with them, you go to another room with three other people. And then you go to another room with three other people. So you're interviewed by a total of nine stone-faced, very serious senior <laughs> firefighters. It's kind of a black box from there on out. But, you know, I got lucky. I got the phone call. And then I was told to go take a drug test. And you have a pre-hire physical that's pretty involved as well. You have to run on a treadmill with a heart rate monitor and do a a test that measures how much air volume your lungs can hold, all of that kind of thing. You have to lift some weights and do push-ups and do an EKG and have all your vaccinations. And then you start the fire academy, which is like a three-month-long boot camp. That was a little unfamiliar to me, just to hand over all of my medical history to an employer. But it's, it's important with the work that we do. You are an employee of the fire department as soon as you do your drug test and you start that um, fire academy. You are an employee. After the three months is completed, you will have a spot to go into the field and work on a fire truck. Of course, you know, there's people that, that fail during that time. It does wash out people who aren't physically fit, you know, can't pass the, the written tests can't show up to work on time. There's there's very little flex during that time period. A firefighter once told me, you know, once you're done with the fire academy and you show up on your first day at 7.01 in the morning, you could be going to the Super Bowl. That's really how it is. You know, you show up for your first day on shift and you're a full-fledged firefighter and you have to go to wherever, wherever you're called. There is a typical day on the job insofar as there's things we do every day. I get to work. My shift starts at 7 a.m. I generally show up at 6.20 in the morning, and that's that's pretty average, actually. That might sound ridiculous to come to work 40 minutes early, but for me, you know, I like to get there, make coffee, watch the news, talk to the off-going shift, find out what calls they ran, how they broke the truck, whatever. Once 7 a.m. rolls around, we check off all of our equipment, 
especially our air pack. Make sure your mask fits properly. You have a full bottle of air. All of your alarms that are supposed to go off on your air pack alarm. And that all your equipment is in good working order. Start all the chainsaws, all that kind of thing. And then we clean the station. Every day we sweep and mop and scrub the toilets and do all of that stuff. It is a paramilitary organization, so I think a lot of that, like, do we need to mop the floors every single day? No, but I think a lot of it has to do with having pride in in where you work, making sure everything looks good because it's your station. Uh, Like, fire, fire departments generally don't hire any type of professional cleaning service. Firefighters do it all. We also cut our own grass and wash our trucks and all of that kind of thing. Uh, so those things get done every day. Call-wise, in my fire district, I have a pretty big university. So very often we get up in the middle of the night and go to uh, somebody stuck in the elevator or somebody tried to cook cookie dough in the microwave for 10 minutes and that didn't work. We also have certain addresses that are frequent callers. You know, we see the address pop up. We know exactly who we're going to. We know exactly what medical problems they have. You know, for example, somebody who has asthma but lets their inhaler run out. And so we know we're going to probably need to go there and give them a breathing treatment. Or somebody who smells a weird smell every couple of weeks and calls the fire department out to check it out. We had a guy who drank a tablespoon of lemon juice in 16 ounces of water last week and was worried he had overdosed on lemon juice. I mean, it's really, you get uh, some funny, some funny things. So those, those make up like a typical day. And then, and then you never know what's going to happen in between, uh, whether you're going to get a really bad car wreck or a really big fire or a shooting. Um, You just, you just never know. My department, we have 30 years before retirement. And seniority is a really big deal. So to have two years on at the department, I'm still considered you know, extremely inexperienced. And in fact, we haven't graduated an academy since my academy two years ago because of COVID. So I am literally the, one of the least experienced people on the department. But at the same time, I have been doing it for years, technically, plural years. But I definitely do still get a lot of adrenaline for certain calls. I think the average person probably doesn't realize how rare fires are nowadays. We probably go to a working house fire. We call it working when it requires the use of a hose line and not just like a little water cannon, you know, two gallons of water type thing. We go to a working house fire probably once every two weeks and we actually get to do stuff once a month, I would say. And I work at a pretty busy, pretty busy district with a lot of fire. So that's on the higher end of things. So, you know, you get to do something once a month, and that's kind of where you're supposed to be the expert. Like there's nobody else. If you screw up putting out a fire, there's nobody else coming to save you. You know, if you screw up on an EMS call, and forget how, how much albuterol you're supposed to administer. You know, hopefully that would never happen. But there is an ambulance coming in the next couple of minutes. And they're going to come help you out. But there's nobody come help you out if you screw up putting out a fire. A working house fire 
can be like a, a whole bed on fire contained to a room. Yes, you still have to bring a hose line in and you're still going to call it a working house fire. Um, you're still going to connect to your hydrant. You're still going to have a crew out there ready to rescue you if you get injured and go down. Uh, but it's a mattress on fire at the end of the day. Not that big of a deal. We call them snot slingers if they're really legit, like blowing through the roof type fires. So we had one of those last summer. I remember we turned out of the station and took our first turn. We were probably about two miles away from the address and we could see the smoke, like the black smoke rising from the address. And I remember, so I ride in the back of the fire truck and I ride backwards. Traditionally, the old fire trucks used to only have the front two seats inside the cab. So the driver and the captain would be inside the cab and then the firefighters would literally just be like outside, like exposed to the elements sitting backwards. So I sit backwards and we turn onto the block and I twisted around in my chair because I could kind of hear the captain and the driver saying like, oh shit, oh shit. And I turned around and we were all the way down the block and I could just see like flames leaping into the air like 20 feet. Uh, it was the middle of the day too, just like 11 a.m. on a Tuesday or something. And there's tons of cars. It's a pretty busy road. The cars were just like slamming on the brakes and blocking our way. I remember just seeing the driver just like laying on the air horn trying to get us through. And then when we got out, you know, I stretched the hose line as close as I could get. The heat was pretty intense in the front yard. And I realized that there was nobody else coming because it just so happened that the stations around us were either on the other side of their district checking fire hydrants or they were out of service for training or something had happened. Normally you're racing to the scene uh, so that you can be the first on scene and you get to do the cool job of taking the hose inside and putting out the fire. But there was nobody, there was nobody on our tail. That was pretty eerie to get out and get set up and not hear sirens from anybody else. And of course, any, any kind of dispatch with a subject trapped comes out as structure fire, subject trapped. That means somebody wasn't able to get out, still inside the house. A couple months ago, we had a vehicle fire subject trapped. And it's always, it's just always a lot more stressful when you hear that. We arrived on scene to the whole engine compartment on fire and my captain ran over and opened the passenger door and could see the guy just kind of sitting in there. That captain is extremely cool-headed, mild-mannered. And when he turned around after opening the door and looked at me and was like, he's in there, he's in there, go pull him out. Seeing him jacked up on adrenaline, that definitely got me jacked up on adrenaline. I ran around and pulled the guy out. Uh, with the help of one other person. The guy was talking to me as we pulled him out, so I'm pretty certain that he survived. But I was just, I couldn't sleep the rest of the night. I couldn't sleep the night after that. Just every time I closed my eyes, I would just think about like what it looked like when I looked in the passenger side door. And it's, it's funny, the things that stick out to you, like I looked in and I saw that he was wearing khakis and a sweater vest, and he was just calmly sitting there with the flames coming up through the dash at his face. I had all my stuff on, like my mask and, um, you know, all of my gear. And I was already reaching for him, but I said, hey, come on, let's go. And he looked at me and he said, what? Why? 
I could tell that he was, you know, mentally altered. Either he had, you know, some other health issue like dementia going on, or he had carbon monoxide poisoning from the smoke. As soon as I realized he was altered, then I like really grabbed him. And it's, it's a strange feeling, like, you know, he's probably in his 70s. It's weird to, to grab as hard as you can onto an old man and, and yank on his arm. I probably dislocated his elbow, but it's just, yeah, I mean, it's just what has to be done, but it is really strange in the moment. I can't say how common PTSD is, but I, I do know, so in the fire academy, they drilled into us that the number one killer of firefighters is suicide, um, followed by cancer. So we have a pretty robust peer support group, um, people that are trained in the fire department uh, on kind of peer counseling. I remember in the fire academy, it was my third day on the job when there was the gas explosion, basically a warehouse got, had a gas leak, um, filled up with gas and exploded and killed several people. And we were sitting in class, like as that happened, being taught by an instructor and his son was working that day. And initially the information that came out from that scene was that five firefighters were missing. Somebody came in and told him, and he burst into tears in front of us. I mean, I'm sure he didn't plan on that or didn't do it to make a statement. Um, but I thought it was a powerful thing to do in front of, you know, recruits on their third day, just to have an, an emotional expression. I think we are lucky as a department. Of course, there's some like tough guy syndrome, but the conversation that is overtly had is you know, PTSD is a problem and bad calls follow you and it's okay to discuss it with your crew. I think, you know, firefighters are uniquely positioned in that when we see something terrible, we see it together and then we're together for 24 hours in the station. So we, we talk about it, we decompress about it. I recognize it as processing and decompression. I don't think that the majority of my coworkers would recognize it like that, but you can tell when something's bothering somebody because they'll just kind of bring up the call over and over again in different ways, unconsciously wanting to talk about it. We have 24 hours a day. We eat three meals a day together. So we have ample opportunity to have those moments. Uh, whereas, you know, like a police officer or something who, who sees something terrible would just be alone with that. I mean, they can talk to their peers about it, but their peers weren't there experiencing it too. I know North Carolina is making a push right now to have a presumptive cancer bill. Basically, anyone who's a firefighter who gets lung cancer, ovarian cancer, breast cancer, testicular cancer, there's, there's eight or nine types of cancer that would be presumed to be from the occupational hazards of being a firefighter. North Carolina is the only state as of now that does not have presumptive cancer laws for firefighters. So hopefully we'll, we'll get that passed, but that's, that's a big deal. If, if that passes, then, you know, if you, if you wind up with lung cancer, then you get, it's a worker's comp issue and you get all of your treatments paid for that kind of thing. The most common injuries are strains and sprains. People trying to do CrossFit in the station when they're old. Wearing all that gear, it does, it does, it has to take a toll on, on you. 
you know, our air pack weighs about 35 pounds. And then just the, the clothing that we wear adds about another 20 pounds. And then we carry tools to pretty much every call that weigh anywhere from 20 to 40 pounds. You're often going up and down stairs. So I try to, I try to take good care of my joints. And um, when you're asleep, when you're dead asleep in the middle of the night and the buzzer goes off, that lets you know that you have a call. Um, you know, I was 28 years old when I first started and I could feel my heart rate and my blood pressure just so high that first time I was woken up by that alarm because you don't know the buzzer goes off and then the dispatch tells you what type of call it's going to be. So it could be a back pain or it could be a structure fire subject trapped. So you kind of get that same physiological response each time. And I do know uh, firefighters die of cardiac events, you know, not infrequently. So for my department of around 400 firefighters, we have between 15 to 17 women. So that percentage is abysmal. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's an extremely male-dominated field. I would consider myself an experienced bro handler, having been, you know, the economics department at UNC was male-dominated. IBM, you know, consulting. Nowadays, less so. But I worked on almost exclusively male teams when I was at IBM. But this, this was like... I mean, it's just so doodly. But I have had a really good experience. Um, I think it's an advantageous for me. I have short hair, you know, kind of more masculine, that kind of thing. My best friend from the Fire Academy, uh, she has long hair. She's a lot more feminine. And she and I, you know, when we swap stories, like we deal with completely different issues. She has to deal with people like flirting with her or like, just being inappropriate, like uh, this whole other set of issues and problems that she has to deal with um, that I never have to deal with. There's a, there's a saying, um, telephone, telegraph, telefireman, that firefighters love to gossip and talk. I think, I mean, it's another aspect of being in the station for 24 hours. And it's just like a giant family that you just gossip about each other. I mean, I love to gossip too. I'm definitely guilty. The rumors, I mean, just as a woman, you just stand out and you do get more, more rumors spread about you than just like average cookie cutter white guy who might be able to just fly under the radar. I'm fortunate, you know, we have several much older, much more experienced women in our department. And one of them, she's since retired, but I heard about what used to happen to her. Uh, you know, I mean, terrible stuff like the guys would put actual like human shit in her boots. They would be on the way to a fire and like the other guy, the guy in the back of the truck with her would look at her and say like, Hey, I hope you die in this fire. Like we're not going to pull you out if you go down, you know, like just absolutely awful, awful things that don't happen anymore in our fire department, which I'm very grateful for. As far as like the, the public sees us as like friendly, benign, helpers of society like that part is true and accurate you know often little old ladies will call us because their smoke detector is is beeping and we'll go there and install a new smoke detector for free 
we're just we're just allowed to do that kind of thing or during covid we do drive by birthday parties where the family will be in the yard and we'll drive by and honk the horn pre covid you know we would go to a whole elementary school class would show up at our station and we would show them the truck and let them climb around put on all of our gear so that they wouldn't be they would know what a firefighter looks like god forbid we had to come save them or something like that i think people join the fire service because they want to help people and like they want that love that people have for firefighters like it is just a big warm fuzzy feeling and i think especially after 9/11 universal respect for firefighters just kind of went through the roof and especially kind of as in contrast to police nowadays i mean it's just it's just really stark obviously we don't carry weapons um yeah we don't kill people even though we're we're lumped into public safety it just kind of makes it even even more noticeable the contrast. So that part that part is all true. My fiance likes to watch Station 19, and that is not it is not accurate. But it's funny. I was telling her about a fatality shooting that I went to the other day, and she listened to my story and she was like, "Yeah, on Station 19 last night there was a cardiac arrest and they worked it for six and a half minutes and, and like told me this whole plot line and I was I looked at her and I was like wow you really just listened to my story and then you were like I also went on this really intense call last night <laughs> but yeah I mean now that I've, I've I've been in it I kind of forget what the public like thinks we do all day I remember one time we had a call that involved an unsecured firearm. The patient had an unsecured firearm. We had to have the police come interview us about what had happened. Turned out that guy was a murder suspect. Uh, this probably had something to do with why we got interviewed about it. And the cops walked in, two very senior investigator type people. They walked in and we were all sitting in the station on couches watching battle bots. They walked in and they were like, ah, this is what you guys do all day. <laughs> I mean, that is what we do. Not all day, but uh, we do get a fair amount of downtime because we work a lot more hours than the average person. So, you know, the city knows that we, we have leisure hours built into our time. So yeah, we do spend time watching battle bots. Yes, we work many hours and yes, we get many, many days off. Uh, that's one of the things that I love about this job is the schedule. So we work 10, 24-hour days a month. That works out to about 56 hours a week. But, I mean, that's only 10 days a month. So our schedule is 24 hours on, 24 hours off, until you have worked five days, and then you get six days off in a row. So right now I'm on my sixth day. I worked on Monday, and I won't go back to work again until Monday. So my roommates and I, we're all going to the mountains this weekend and you know I can run all kinds of errands and chores during the nine to five time when a lot of people are stuck working yeah it's funny like we work ridiculous hours and have so much time off it's it's both and because we work so many hours you know I make twelve dollars and forty cents an hour just to put that out there <laughs> to do this job um, yes I work 56 hours a week and I'm paid for all of those hours but none of those hours are overtime. Our department is one of the lowest paying but busiest departments in the state right now. That's one of the things I really loved about 
the fire academy and, and being in the fire service in general is the extremely diverse group of people you get to work with because all you need to do this job is a high school diploma or a GED. You know, when I worked at IBM, everybody had college degrees. You know, everybody had to have a good GPA. All of these like selecting factors that decides who your coworkers are. And I think that's that's really cool. Like like all all it takes is working hard, and then you can you can get into this amazing career with a pension, and it's unionized still in North Carolina, which is extremely rare. But the the commonality is that people are not like-minded, but they're, at risk of sounding cheesy, like-hearted. I remember I was talking to this guy in my fire academy, just super, super country guy, you know, high school education. Like, he and I probably never would have crossed paths if not for the fire academy. And we were talking about the interview, um, what answers we gave to our interview questions. One of the questions was, about diversity, you know, how do you feel about living and working with people of different races, genders, sexual orientations? And I asked him what his answer was, and he turned to me and he said, well, I don't want a team of all quarterbacks. And, like, I just thought that was, like, so perfect. It's just, like, so him, and it, like, just gets to the core of why diversity is important. And, and that, to me, like, illustrates the like-heartedness you know, I do think, like, as a society, like, we are so divided now. People get in their echo chambers, people that think like them. I mean, our, our social media feeds do it for us. Like, they only show us things that they think that we'll click on and like, and y you make your own bubble. Uh, and I have the, the privilege of being able to, like, really connect, you know, have these extreme experiences with people and connect with them on a on like a personal and emotional level and that enables us to have like civilized political discussion um i get the chance to like really listen to them and listen to like how they got to that point um how they got to that way of thinking things get said at the firehouse that i certainly don't agree with and i don't think are appropriate but it's definitely a pick your battles uh, long game thing in my mind like you're not going to be able to have somebody listen to you and take you seriously and really think about what you're saying if you don't have a meaningful relationship with them to begin with and really like be heard by the people around me you know not not shut people down by saying like oh you're so fucked up like you're so you're so politically incorrect you know people people don't want to listen to that and they're going to turn it off I definitely think Feeling like I'm doing good work and helping people is the is the dominant reason why I chose to do this work. Yeah, I mean, it just sounds it sounds so like played out, but that's really what it boils down to, and it's really what makes me feel fulfilled and happy on on a day to day basis. And there's other aspects too. You know, I never have to send emails. I get to be outside a lot. I have a great schedule. I'm involved in our union. Like I think labor organizing is, is really important to me. Uh, and there's very few opportunities to engage in it in North Carolina. So that's, that's also a really fulfilling side of things for me. I hope, I really hope I can get a 30 year career out of this. I have started driving the fire truck a little bit. I think I'll like it. 
but I like going inside the building with the hose more. That's the first promotion after firefighter is to driver. So I'm trying to put off that, that responsibility for a little bit longer. Um, after driver, then you're a captain uh, and you're in charge of everybody on the truck. And, you know, you're in charge of your station pretty much, unless you have two captains at a station and you're both in charge. I think eventually I would really like to get to that level where, you know, you decide what the training is going to be for the day. You make calls on scene, you know, what the tactic is going to be. If you're going to go interior, say exterior, or, you know, you're just kind of the boss. I think I would like that. You can stop at whichever rank you enjoy and just ride out your career there. Like the only thing that would prevent me from having a 30 year career is injury or illness, which yeah, is something that I, I think about. I would, I do really hope to stay in this field um, till the end. Maybe, maybe the thing that I've gotten out of this job so far would be a closer relationship with death. We just deal with death a lot, especially on the, on the EMS side. Uh, you know, we go, we go to a, a cardiac arrest where CPR is in progress probably every week or two. We've been to three fatality shootings this year. And yeah, just, just seeing like the family react, seeing like the community react, like being right there in the moment um, of somebody's death, you know, puts things in perspective. I just, I, I kind of had this feeling when I worked at IBM that I was looking at the world through, through a window and that I couldn't quite be connected to other people. I think that had something to do with how far removed I was from the actual work being done. But now I feel just like very intimately connected with just my fellow human being, basically. I remember the first time that I got pulses back on a cardiac arrest. I literally felt like, and I mean, I did, I like brought someone back from the dead with my bare hands. Like that's, that's pretty amazing. Basically, I just feel more connected to humanity or more whole in a way now that I have this relationship with death that I didn't have before. Like I think as a society in the US, nobody wants to think about death, nobody wants to talk about it, nobody wants to touch a dead body. But you know, something about just getting intimately acquainted has made me just feel more alive and more connected to, to life and others.